Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read all the way down through chapter 2 and verse 14. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Lord, this is such a glorious text. But it is also a very familiar text. And I ask this morning, Father, that in the hand of your Spirit this would become more than mundane, and more than familiar to us. That Holy Spirit in your hands, that this text would come alive with all of the power and the truth that is contained therein. And that our hearts would be changed. 
It may be that there is someone here this morning who has not received the greatest gift, the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ in receiving Him as their Savior. This morning, Holy Spirit, if that is the case and you know all who that would apply to, would you give them that gift? Would you grant them faith to believe a heart that desires Jesus and cause them by your omnipotent power to turn to him in faith? And may those of us for whom you have already granted to us that faith who do believe, may this be a great passage that causes our heart to rejoice because our minds understand even more having gone over it again the glories that are present in Jesus. May we sing his worthiness and his praise, not just in this season, but in all of our days, for what his coming to us means. And so now let us worship around his feet, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world today that It seems that everything can be explained by science or mathematics, algorithms, codes, any number of formulas that are used to make the world that we live in go round and round. And yet we're reminded when we read this text this morning, this this greatest event in history up to this point, and I say up to this point because the resurrection is still to come. We read this and we are reminded that to this point in eternity and without this point for all of eternity, there would be no hope. But because of this, the brilliance of men is absolutely defied. There is no science that can explain this. It is outside and it is above science. There is no mathematical equation that the greatest mathematicians could develop that would explain this. There are no technological algorithms that could come up with and provide the solution that God has provided in the birth of Jesus Christ. This is a supernatural event. That yields a supernatural salvation. It is literally the dividing line in eternity. That God coming out from outside of time. Who is himself eternal. Has pierced the veil of time. He has pierced the veil of space and matter that he himself created. He has defied the very laws of nature that he himself wrote in order to bring us to him by his son who will lead us back to the father. There is no other answer that men can give. Everything in time and in eternity hinge on this passage. Everything. Everything. You are either on a positive side through faith in this, you believe this, or you are under judgment because you deny this. 
one of the two. It leaves no room for neutrality. You can't overstate it. And you cannot ignore it. You must reckon with and come to terms with what God has revealed through his son, Jesus. And how he has prepared us for this moment, hasn't he? Over the last three weeks, by, by listing and taking us through this astounding genealogy from which Jesus, humanly speaking, has descended. And now he brings us to the climax in the birth of Jesus himself. And so with me this morning, I want you to consider the miracles that are present here in the birth narrative. It's not just simply that Jesus came. It's not just simply that Jesus came born of a virgin. It is that Jesus came in all the glory of the Godhead. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle present in his birth, all through his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and yes, even in his session of ruling and reigning now with his father. First of all, there is a miracle that God has come. Look in chapter 1, verse 18. There is a miracle that God has come to man. He did not send an ambassador. He did not send a letter. He sent himself. His own son has come. God has come to dwell in his own creation. As part of his creation that we have destroyed by our sin. And yet he has come to it. Now the birth of Jesus the Christ. As we've seen. The promised one of God. Is as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Mary is young. Betrothal in this time and in this culture typically occurred around 12 years of age and would last for a period on average of 12 months. Joseph would have been, if customs and culture hold true, about six years older than her, old enough to have been established financially to take care of her, arranged by parents And so here you have a, a very young girl, and some of you, your daughters are in that window. Your sons are in that window. And you, you begin to, to see the humanity, and you place yourself like, oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Twelve years old. Engaged to be married, betrothed to Joseph. And it is in that window of time, in that very normal, cultural progression of life. That's not outstanding. That's the way everybody did it back then. But into that seemingly mundane, routine way of carrying on one's life, God invades. God comes down. And He does so miraculously. He comes, we're told in verse 20, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus' birth quickly takes on a supernatural meaning by that one phrase. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. Now that is just mind-blowing. The birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of God. Can God be born? No, God is from eternity past. How is it then that God was born? Well, he was not born in the sense you and I are born, that we are conceived and we have a beginning. God took on humanity. That has not always been true of God. But the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes on him the, the, the humanity of conception in the womb of Mary, a young woman who has not known a man. And yes, that's the very definition of the word virgin here. It is not one of the other words that could have been used that simply describe a young woman of childbearing age. This is a woman who knows not a man. There is no way that this happens. And so the miracle that Christ, God himself, has been conceived in the womb, that's one thing, but, but to be outside the normal channels and to be placed there, according to verse 20, by the Holy Spirit himself is a miracle. God has come both to cause the thing and to be the thing, to, to become man. He alone, meaning the Godhead, must have put Christ in that position, and he does so by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle. God visits Mary, God remains with Mary by the implanting of the Holy Seed of Christ Himself within her, so that He might have a human beginning, though He has no beginning as God. That's a miracle. God who is separate from, dependent on nothing, separate from everything, above everything, has chosen to work in this way. Jesus is miraculous from the very announcement onward. He becomes miraculous in his conception. He becomes miraculous in his birth. He becomes miraculous in his life. In his death, in his resurrection, God is at work. This is outside of human means. This is the beginning of Jesus as a man. And it is miraculous. If we look at verse 18, we find that the same word that God originally inspired here, birth, is the same word that we get genealogy translated from in chapter 1, verse 1. And it is the same word from which we get the first book in our Bible, Genesis. It is literally the beginning. Now, the beginning of Jesus Christ, humanly speaking, is as follows. Not as God, but as man. The miracle is that God, without beginning, takes upon him humanity with beginning. That eternally present and eternally powerful God placed there 
so that he could accomplish what only God could accomplish, and that is, as we will see later, the salvation of his people. Jesus comes into the world he created. Imagine that. Some of you have even asked me that question in recent days. Did, when did Jesus become aware of who he, who he was? And I think the answer is always. He does grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, according to Luke. But there is never a time when he is not God, even though he is man. And he knows all things. He maintains his omniscience, though he does not always act upon it. It's a miracle. If you and I were ever in that position, we can't fathom that because, hey, we would want everyone to know who we were. You know, to show off a little bit. To know and name every flower that you see along the road. By name. Every blade of grass. Every hair on every head of every person you pass, you know it. Because you created it. It's a miracle. He comes into a world he created, and yet he comes into a world that is filled with rebels. Sinners who hate him. And this is where the story really becomes interesting, doesn't it? He comes into the world he created to people he created. And according to John's gospel, as we've studied in recent past, his own did not receive him. Not his creation, not his ethnic tribe, meaning the Jews, meaning his own family, reject him. In utter rebellion against him. He comes as their creator, having given them their breath. Imagine being Jesus. And enduring the cursings of men. Enduring the rejection of men. And with every breath, when they curse you, you are fully aware, I put that breath in their lungs. With every beat of their heart that they use to strengthen their body. To reject you, to plan against you, to ultimately crucify you. You put that beat in their heart. And yet he came. Would you? Not a chance. But Christ came. A miracle of divine, sovereign love. To execute a plan that had been conceived of by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past. He came to set people free. He comes into a world. He comes into a world marred by rebellion and full, filled with rebels. And he comes to those made in his own image to redeem them. You see, humanity in itself is not the problem. After all, God made man, right? God created man how, though? 
in his own image. Sin is the problem. And Christ has come to restore man back to the image and for the purpose with which he created it. That we might reflect the brilliant glory of God for all of eternity. Well, how does this transpire? It transpires miraculously because the Holy Spirit causes it to be so. This is not normal human consummation that has created this child. This is the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit could work such a miraculous life, clothing Christ in humanity, that He might do what He came to do. The Holy Spirit has placed him there. Verse 20. Joseph, who who thinks that this is, you know, life is normal. I've, I've taken a young lady. Our parents have agreed. We're betrothed to be married. And in the space of a year, roughly, we'll be married. We'll be husband and wife. And in a dream, God comes to Joseph. And with astounding clarity, twice he tells Joseph this. Look! Behold! Command. Wake up, Joseph. Look, Joseph, I'm about to tell you something. It's going to blow your mind. Your betrothed is with child. What? I've not known her. I mean, you can imagine the the humanity of Joseph's response. Has someone else known her to cause this? No, no, Joseph, listen. The child came to be there because the Holy Spirit put him there. Joseph's mind is obviously swirling because he hears it and he decides he'll put Mary away according to the law in the least damaging way to her character as possible. And that that proves what Scripture tells us, that Joseph is a righteous man. He wishes no ill to come upon Mary. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to cause her any more pain than what she will already endure being an unmarried expectant mother. That says a lot about Joseph. He really is a righteous man. He's a good man. But he's a human man. In need of a savior and in need of understanding. And so the the, the angel has to say, look, Joseph, don't divorce her. I'll tell you again. The child that is in her is not from another man. It's not from you. It's not from anyone else. It is by the Holy Spirit, a miracle. There is nothing immoral or illicit about the child. Now, we go back to the genealogy, and this is where the genealogy really plays in. How many conceptions illegitimately exist in that genealogy? Oh, boy. More than one. How many women could not claim the chaste reputation and testimony of Joseph and Mary in that lineage? whole bunch it is as if the angel is saying to joseph 
your own family tree, this isn't like that. This is different than what you've descended from, Joseph. I know what you're thinking. This is not it. Though you are the son of David, and though he in Mary's womb is the son of David, he didn't get here because of what your ancestors experienced. He got here by a miraculous placement of the Holy Spirit, perfectly free from any trace or stain of sin. In fact, so perfect is it that it's not even a marriage union that produces children that God blesses. It's not even that. Because Joseph, had you been involved, there would have been sin. Because sin is passed on from the father, the head of the relationship, the, 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 the one who passes on culpability, according to Romans 5. It's Adam's seed that's the problem. It's the seed of man. And and even Joseph, if this had been righteously conceived and you guys had righteously come together as a husband and wife, it still wouldn't be right. The child within her is of the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle. And it matters. You see, I think too often times we as God's people tend to throw around truths that are very true and must be talked about, such as the virgin birth. We believe in the virgin birth. But do you know why that matters? What matters? Because sin matters. And Jesus is born in the second miracle, not only that God has come, but he's come to save. And this These two are inextricably linked by the virgin birth, that it could not have been with sin. Look at verse 21. Look, Joseph, still in the dream. She is going to bear a son, and you will. We get shall. It's a very polite English translation. You shall do this. Very British of us, right? No, no, you will do this. You will do this. Joseph, you will name him Jesus. You see, it is the right of the father to name the son in this culture. On the eighth day, and we see this in Luke's account, when they take Jesus to the temple on the eighth day, and he's circumcised, and he's dedicated to the Lord, and we run into Simeon the prophet and Anna, who are awaiting the birth of the Messiah. And they instantly, they know who he is. But Joseph doesn't get to name him. Joseph has no choice in the matter. He doesn't get to say, you know, I think, uh, man, I really love the name Andrew. I really love the name Isaiah. I, I really love all these other names. No, the angel says, Joseph, you will name him Jesus. Now, I'm under no illusions that Joseph is arguing here. But if he were, you can almost see the angel nodding his head. You will, won't you, Joseph? Yes. You will name him Jesus. Why? He's not your son. He's the son of God. And God has sent him for one reason. To save his people from their sin. And that's what his name will mean. 
Jesus, the shortened form of Yeshua, Joshua, which means God saves. You see, his father is naming him. And he is naming him in accordance with the mission that he has sent him on. And the mission that he has sent him on is to save his people from their sin. Edward Clink defines sin this way. That basic self-centered aversion to God's laws. And sin clearly throughout the Old Testament was the cause of God's wrath poured out on the nation of Israel. Christ alone. Jesus alone has provided the antidote for sin once and for all. Joseph, you will name him Jesus because the miracle is this. Not only that God has come, he has come to save, not to destroy. There could be no sin in his life, Joseph. Don't worry about what people think. Don't worry about what you think. Understand this, there can be no sin in him because his very mission is a miracle to do away with sin. Therefore, why would he come in sin? It can't be. God has sent him on a mission to save. He is sinless in his conception. He will be sinless in his life so that he will remove sin from others by his death. He will pay the price for their sins. He'll have none. Because God has come, and God has come specifically to do a saving work, and therefore you will name him Jesus. Now I want you to notice an interesting term that the angel uses. Again, God sends the angel with a message, and the message is to be delivered just as the one who sent you told you to deliver it. You're not allowed to play with words. You tell it exactly like the king told you to tell it, and then you go back and you tell the king, this is exactly what I said. I was faithful. And the angel comes, and he, and he tells Joseph, the child that was within Mary will save his people from their sin. You say, well, what's the big deal? Because the Jews at the time of Jesus' birth were not looking for salvation. They were looking for a different word, deliverance. He does not come and say he will deliver his people. He says he will come and save his people. Two very distinct words, and the word used here is save. Because the problem is not Rome. The problem is not Herod. The problem is sin. And he has come to remedy a far greater problem than political tyranny. He has come to save his people. Do you hear that? Christ came to save you from. Not just get you out of. But to wholly loose you from sin. From the judgment that it incurs from the power over your life that it will maintain if God does not break it, and ultimately someday from the very presence of it all together in heaven with Christ, he's come to do all of those for you. You know what your problem is in life? Sin. You know what every problem that we have 
is a result of sin. Every illness that we have, now I'm not saying you have sinned and this is why you're ill, but we live in a world that is broken and thus we have illness. What broke the world? Sin. That's why heaven's going to be great, isn't it? All the things that plague us will be gone because sin is gone. Christ came to break the curse of sin, to redeem people from their rebellion against God, to pronounce pardon where there is only judgment on them currently. And it's different than what people in Jesus' day were expecting. They just wanted out from under the tyranny of Rome. They wanted to be sovereign citizens of a sovereign nation. That's so temporal. That's so temporal. God came to save from something much worse. You can have joy even under tyranny as a believer. Because you've been released from the greatest tyranny, which is sin. Yesterday morning, I had the privilege of meeting with 258 underground Chinese pastors to kick off a course on preaching. And as you talk to these men, you just, you leave in tears. They're not concerned about the persecution they're currently facing. Not ultimately. They've been freed from sin. And the joy that is in those men is absolutely infectious. It's rebuking to know the power of the gospel and how little we think of it. How little we think of our own sin and it actually being a problem. Oh, Jesus came to release us from the bondage of sin. It's a miracle. Thirdly, it's a miracle that fulfills prophecy. Look at verse 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Ah, here we go. Not a new thing. This is not, you know, Joseph ate some bad matzah the night before and He's having bad dreams in the middle of the night. No, no, this is this has been a long time coming. And to prove it, the angel quotes scripture, which Joseph obviously knew. Every good Jewish man would have known this prophecy. There, there is coming a time a virgin shall be with child. Now, Joseph, what did I just tell you? That the child within her is of the Holy Spirit, not a man. Sound familiar? Isaiah, maybe? Well, that's right. This is not a new thing. This is an old thing. This is God fulfilling his promises as God always does. 
He never fails. And Joseph has the distinct privilege of living at the epicenter of God's fulfillment of that prophecy. Imagine that. I think it's okay to be a little envious of Joseph. (laughs) I would have loved to have been in his position. You mean this is it? That child, that's the one? That's the one, Joseph. I have fulfilled down to the situation of the birth regarding Mary's character. I have fulfilled it down to the nth degree and detail of the city and the time and the lineage. Oh, you remember that rascal Jeconiah, your descendant, that, that he made it where your, your, your descendants could never Sit, your physical sons will never sit on David's son. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've circumvented that because he's not really your son by biological reproduction. He's your son legally. Oh, that's him? That's him. The, this is prophecy fulfilled. A virgin will bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. He's God. Yes, Joseph, God has come down. Out of his transcendent and glorious and holy and perfect heaven, God has descended down. And he is within your betrothed. And he will be born a normal human birth. And he will be truly God and truly man. In a miracle of the union of two natures, the likes of which has never happened before and will never happen again. And he will bear the sins of his people because of who he is. And he will fulfill all prophecy. You've waited so long. The people of God have waited so long. So many have died before they saw it. You know, that that brings me to a second Character that I would have loved to have been. Simeon. And Anna. They're old and advanced in age. They're on death's doorstep. And they go to the temple. And they have the blessing of being able to see God's promised fulfillment. The Messiah before they die. And that they are thrilled. They die completely fulfilled. Because their eyes had seen God's salvation. This is him, Joseph. This is the one we've been talking about. This is the one everyone has been waiting for. And it is literally that God is with you. It's a miracle. And it's followed by a fourth miracle, and it is a miracle of worship. I want you to notice, we jump very quickly to chapter 2 and the wise men and the worship they offer. But notice that the worship does not begin with the wise men. The worship begins with Joseph. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph obeys God. Obedience, brothers and sisters, 
could be at least from our vantage point a legalistic keeping of a list of rules it could be but that's not really obedience that's pride trying to please God by things you do that's not obedience true obedience is birth from worship and what greater worship is there than in verse 24 Joseph awakes from his dream and does everything that the angel of the Lord commanded him to do and he marries Mary and we say that's really sweet I wonder what they got at their wedding shower. And we think about it so humanly. It's not it at all. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. First of all, you have to believe everything you were told. Then you have to be willing to act upon it in a way that you know is going to be mocked by everyone in your little town. And then you're going to be accused of doing things with Mary that you did not do. And your own reputation has to be sacrificed on the altar of obedience that flows from deep worship. That it doesn't matter what it costs you. You are so thrilled with the person of God and so thrilled by the salvation that has come, you're willing to be considered a fool. Maybe even a philanderer of types to do what you're commanded to do. Joseph, so overwhelmed. Because remember, this is not Joseph's first response. What's Joseph's first response? We'll deal with this as privately as he can, but I'm not marrying her. I can't. It's going to cost too much. It's going to cost me everything. My reputation will be where people will ask questions. And now, no, Joseph, the Lord says, go and do. So when Joseph awakes, he doesn't go consult legal experts. He goes and he obeys. And he does, verse 25, what God had commanded him to do, he does not touch her in an intimate way until she had given birth to the son and he calls him Jesus. He doesn't say, no, we're going we're gonna to change it. We're going to call him Benjamin or Judah or any of the other names that were on the top ten name list that year. We're calling him Jesus because that's exactly who his father said to call him. I am not his father in that sense. I am merely his earthly guardian that provides him a legal link and claim to the throne of David because he is the king. I will serve in whatever capacity I must serve. And by the way, Mary's response is no less than Joseph's. Remember her response when the angel comes to her and he says, Mary highly favored by God. And he gives her the same news. And she says what? Behold the handmaid of the Lord, the lowliest of the low. 
Whatever you say, Lord. Whatever you say. There's this this act of worship that is prevalent in them. They are willing to do and they are willing to pay a price. So that the Messiah comes and does his saving work. But it's not just Mary and Joseph. It's who comes after him. Look at this. Chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. These are not Jewish men. They are not steeped in the scriptures. More than likely they are kings from a pagan tradition and a pagan culture. But even their God in a miraculous way has told them come and they come. And they bring gifts that are not just your average, you know, baby registry things. They bring three gifts that one would only offer to a king. Gold. Frankincense. And myrrh. This king would be different. For he would die to save his people from their sins. And yet these Pagan kings, because God says go, they go. More than likely, they are astrologers who worship the stars, and so they're constantly looking to the stars. And yet, even pagans bow down before this miraculously conceived and God wrought God man. I want you to notice something. Again, a miracle of miracles, and this goes into the fifth one. There's the miracle of preservation. Because they encounter not Jesus on their arrival, not Joseph, not Mary, but Herod. Herod's a bad man. Herod is such a wicked man, and this is, again, helpful to know our history, but how wicked is Herod? We, we look at the slaughter of the boys in that region under Herod's rules and the blood flowed and, and, and we can't fathom it, can we? But are we aware that this is the same Herod who had his own wife and two sons murdered because he felt threatened by their ascension to power? Same guy. This man wants no rivals, not even his own flesh and blood. He is not above having them put to death so that they do not threaten his hold on power. He has no problem slaughtering your kids. He killed his own. And this man who wants worship, he wants blind fealty. He wants power and control. He wants to coerce it from the people. And yet he cannot have it. And into his front door walk three men who've come from probably somewhere in the region of India. Not an easy trip. Look at northern India. Do you know what it takes to get out of northern India? Some pretty big mountains. Some pretty daunting passes. And they come and they bring worship that Herod craved but could not coerce. And they bring it to a baby. 
Herod must have been livid. Notice what Herod does. He goes and he consults with biblical scholars. Herod should have known. He doesn't know. And he cavorts with and consults with all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he says, where is the Messiah going to be born? I want no rivals. Well, uh, bad news here. He is going to be born exactly where the three wise men said he was born. This may be it. And so Herod feigns, we know the story, right? His desire to go and worship. No, his desire to go and worship himself through murder. The wise men go, preserved by God in their journey, preserved by God in their confrontation with Herod, preserved as they fall upon the ground. The word is proskuneo. It's not service of worship, the most commonly used word for worship in the New Testament. It is one that they are face down on the ground. Unable to move. Struck by the beauty and the awe of the king. And from their satchels, they, after a period of worship, of prostrating themselves on the ground before this infant, they open up their satchels and they produce gifts fit for a king. Who are these men? They are men moved upon by God. The same God who put Jesus in the womb. The same God who came to Mary. The same God who came to Joseph. The same God who from eternity past drew up a plan of redemption for you. And God has preserved it. And in every detail and in every step, God is glorified. Because his plan has not failed. In fact, it has succeeded or succeeded more brilliantly than we can even comprehend. That's what we celebrate right now. That's what all of this is about. It's really enough to make you want to go home and just sit and ponder. All that God is and all that God has done and all that God has offered to you through His Son. How cheap the most expensive thing we purchased for a loved one is compared to that. How worthless, how fleeting, how meaningless compared to Christ. How powerless compared to God. There is nowhere in this world That this king does not reign. There is no king too tall to not be placed under this infant's foot. There is no sin too deep or too dark that he cannot touch it. Forgiving it and freeing the person who holds it from its power. This is the miracle. That we celebrate and have come to call Christmas. No, it is Christ. It's Christ in all of his glory. And we worship him. May we do that from 
hearts that are overflowing with gratitude this Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And I say this as lovingly and as kindly as I can. And may we not only worship Jesus, but may everything else we do be a little less meaningful so that he becomes more to us. May Christ be all for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. What a glorious birth. What a glorious life. What a glorious mission. Lord Jesus, that you undertook. May it cause faith in us. May you cause everyone who has heard this, your word, to believe. And may it produce in us faith and worship and obedience and delight in who you are. And as we sing so many times, may the things of earth grow strangely dim even presents, even traditions, even food. May it go strangely dim in the light of your glory and the grace that is found in Jesus. And may all of your people with one heart and one voice be able to say, Amen.